This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning, and welcome to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host, and today the business at hand is the business of designing and building structures, which have been designed and built by architects and urban planners who have designed and built both structures and communities with form and function in mind for many centuries. But today we have uh, an increasing emphasis on smart homes, sustainable homes, livable communities. And so I'm very pleased to have as my guest today to talk about that, architect and urban planner Roy Taylor of RT3 Architects. Welcome to the Business Hour, Roy. Good morning, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here to speak with you today. Now, Roy, um, let's let's start off with this uh, general question before we get to an overview of what uh, RT3 Architects offers to its clients. Um, let's just start off with your perception of how the profession, the discipline, the practice of architecture may have changed over the last let's say 30 to 40 years well one of the things that i have seen in that are changes that have occurred in this country which is what i've only really observed um, is the unification of our coding system The country used to be covered with a variety of different types of building codes, and over the years they have come together to become an international building code uh, organization. So we now have been using for the last 12 years the IBC, or International Building Code, under uh, both building and its various components. The one component that is notably outside of that is electrical, and that is under the National Electrical Code, NEC. Um, But most of the other portions of it have to do with um, being able to look at plumbing, fire, energy, mechanical systems are all IBC codes and are generally accepted around the country. Um, and do you, for, from your perspective, do you see that being adopted uh, uh, internationally, uh, hence the IBC designation? Do, do you think we're going to see um, more and more countries, uh, certainly where the economy can, can afford to, uh, to follow the guidelines? I don't know what the international scene is uh, having to do with the acceptance of the International Building Code, and so I'm probably not the best person to speak to that. I do know that there are some interesting things that are happening on a world basis within architecture, something that was just announced recently, uh, a collection of different bodies of architects from various different countries around the world, the AIA representing that from the United States, have joined together in a common goal of reducing or getting to zero the carbon output from all buildings by 2050. Currently, the buildings 
both residential and commercial, comprise energy usage and carbon output of about 30-something percent of the world's resources in that regard. So if we can reduce the CO2 and CO2 equivalent output from the building trades, we will have gone a long way. Now, um, just to drill down for a moment, do you view the um, IBC, at least uh, in the United States, as providing relatively good guidelines for uniformity from uh, West Coast to East Coast, n- North to South? Um, or, uh, and, 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 it, and it might be true that it's both a good thing and, and, a, and a real pain to comply with, but uh, it's your perception that it's uh, been... Um, a step in the right direction? I do think that it's a step in the right direction because it there are a lot of firms that do work in varieties of different places, different states, uh, and jurisdictions. So it is good to not have to completely change your thinking as you're moving from one state to the next. Although it is true that in almost every state there are variations on that, which become state amendments through their own uh, building departments. Here it is the community of uh, development. I'm trying to remember the exact designation for the it's state. A, the national? Oh, it's no, a state, no. State, state at each state level, they review these, they accept those, and they accept amendments that are written by the state officials uh, to tailor those rules to the particular state. So it's not some onerous overview of that we all have to be following the exact same thing because conditions are certainly different here in this state versus another. Would would an example be that insulation guidelines way up north are going to be a little bit different or maybe a lot different than they are in the deep south? Yes, but our attention to them, although certainly in the south we are more on a cooling cycle, and if we were in Minnesota, we'd be more in a heating cycle. So you've got that difference. You've got also uh, some major differences between uh, different segments of the types of heat that we and cooling that we have. And so we have areas of moist heat and Uh, moist cool or moderate cool. We have dry heat and we have dry cool. So those are really four different areas of the country that need to be taken into account. But the ideas of what we're trying to accomplish with the ASHRAE, which is the organization that has to do with heating and cooling that sets standards, that is still going to be fairly uniform across the country, although how you build to those standards becomes different in each of those areas. Would it be safe to say that the standards, uh, although regionalized, are designed to help to mitigate the negative impacts of heat or cold or moisture? Yeah, those those are the things that we are trying to take, and I have to say that it is in the development of these standards, of the ASHRAE standards, that is helping to move along, and the IBC keeps up with that, with which standards that they are accepting and where they are in that process of accepting those things, um, is really moving the whole country forward to better-built buildings, 
So the when I was having these discussions with clients in, say, the mid-90s, many of the things that I was trying to get them to adopt at that point, at this point, 15 years later, have already been adopted into the code. And so now it's just a matter of documenting that they actually were built or designed to be built at that level, as opposed to being able to uh, just sort of conjole, yes, this is better for you, yes, this makes more sense, yes, this is. And it becomes a type of thing, just like our efficiency standards that occur for appliances, that have increased tremendously our um, setting of goals for our gasoline standards, the, the cafe fuel efficiency standards for automobiles and light trucks. These are all moving the country toward using less energy, which is a tremendous portion of what we need to be thinking about now. It is our ability to do more with less the it without getting into sacrificing the service that we are looking for so in cars it's you know miles per gallon in uh appliances uh you know you want to be able to go to the refrigerator and get out cool food um in the house you want to stay warm or cool you want to be comfortable and Many of these things happen invisibly to the user, and that's a good thing. You don't have to necessarily wear a big badge that says, I'm doing a better job. One of the things that we have moved from that has created a very visible difference is in light bulbs. We've all seen the, pro- the progression of moving from an incandescent bulb that we all grew up with and screwed into light and flipped on. And not only did we get some light, we got a lot of heat. And we've now moved to taking a bulb that is using about 25 to 30% the amount of electricity, getting the same amount of light, and getting less heat. And we are right now in the process of moving to the next stage, which is LEDs, and that's down to about 10% of the original electrical use for the same amount of light and almost no heat. The implications of this are huge in that when you start applying the LEDs to entire office buildings, Office buildings are almost always controlled by uh, a cooling cycle because of the amount of people, the amount of lighting, the ballasts that had to be in there to uh, fire up the big standard two-foot-by-four-foot fluorescent fixtures now are being replaced by something that uses much less electricity, produces much less heat, and all of a sudden the huge savings comes in by either not running the air conditioning systems as much or in new construction being able to actually build with much smaller 
uh, HVAC units. So there's a huge cost savings both in the initial costs for construction and in the user costs. This type of thing ripples throughout the environment so that our peak energy usage in this country and in much of the world happened right around 2007, right at the apex of our uh, financial crisis. And there was a lot of disruption that occurred during the financial thing that took some companies to uh, slow down and have a smaller output. But what we have found is as efficiency has taken over and as some of this new technology has increased, we are finding that we are growing our economy, we are getting greater amounts of output, and our energy usage has not increased as a whole country since that time. Well, this is huge implications as to how the power companies are going to be serving that electrical needs and how they are going to be able to work with uh, generating electricity. And that becomes a whole new story. I do recall uh, some 40 years back when I had taken a uh, a course that included a a section on uh, the thermodynamics uh, of energy conversion processes and of uh, looking at um, various technologies, including light bulbs, and learning just how much heat an incandescent light bulb um, output and totally seeing it in a different light, uh, no pun intended. Um, I saw light bulbs in each room as the kind of thing where I would turn on as much for heat as, as for light. We're going to take a break. We're here with architect Roy Taylor. We'll be back with Roy right after this break. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to the Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. 
This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with architect and urban planner Roy Taylor, and we've been talking about, oh, the evolution of codes uh, related to the design and construction of um, various structures over the last few decades. But now I want to turn to talking a little bit about RT3 Architects, Roy's firm, which offers a, a, a broad range of services. Um, so, Roy, tell us whether or not you, you focus on residential, commercial, industrial, interior, exterior, new construction, renovation, design, build, urban planning, uh, or some combination thereof. Tell us a little bit about um, what the range of services of RT3 Architects is. Okay. the By the time I had started my own firm, which the, was when? Well, Roy Taylor RA uh, was developed right after we moved to Georgia. Uh, my wife had had a uh, great job opportunity presented to her, so we packed up the family and, and moved from uh, Pennsylvania down to Georgia. And it was in the process of that relocation when this was in 95 in the lead up to the uh, Olympics that were happening here in Atlanta and architectural jobs were plentiful. They were seeking work. They, they just there was a huge amount of effort that was being done to rebuild and build anew around in downtown Atlanta and in the surrounding area at that time. I came down I put out my resumes as I was expecting to be able to just seamlessly move into one of those things and was actually surprised when I did not get many responses. And uh, while I was waiting, because I'm not a waiter, um, I called around to all of the um, contractors, realtors, and such, and uh, said, new kid in town, um, you know, do you need services? And there was people that came forward and said, hey, could you help with this? And by the time that I had gotten a, other, a headhunter group had reached out to place me here in the area, that um, I made a decision that I was on my own, ready to be on my own. I had done various times, had been on my own before, um, and it just seemed like this was the time to do that again. So... It was not until a major decision to take my public efforts of sustainability that we actually did a name change and went from just my own name to RT3 Architects, and that happened in 2003. So that was eight years after you you arrived. And, and Roy, tell us about uh, those uh, first couple of years. Did you focus then on either residential or commercial structures? It started more in the residential side because that was the place to get an introduction. And I have never left the residential side behind because the work that you do for a residence and the interactions with the clients, with the family, often with a couple, are very different than those in the commercial field. 
the goals are different and the methods for which to achieve those goals are often very different. But by the time I had moved to Georgia, I had had a wide range of things that I had done through other people's firms and on my own, so that you had asked the question about, you know, did I start by offering all of these services right up front? And the answer is yes, as, you know, it's a small firm, and it is put together in what I call a virtual office, where we have different draftspeople, different engineers, different architects that we collaborate with, and we pull together teams that work on any particular project and fulfill the needs of that client, whether it be a business person or it be um, for residential purposes, to be able to get those services met. So so to operationalize this, Roy, if someone had said to you, um, we've got some new construction, would you help us with this? And someone else said, we're doing some renovation work, could you help us with that? And someone else said, we're doing some historic renovation, which is a little more specific than general renovation. You, you were able to, when you arrived here, you had had some experience and you were able to work in those different areas? Absolutely. And so there are uh, those types of projects, uh, both uh, while we've been here, but also right currently that we are working on every one of those different levels for you know, at different stages of development. We currently have uh, a, it is technically an addition, but it's really a full house of a four-bedroom uh, addition <laughs> with full living space, new kitchen, and everything. Four additional bedrooms? Yes. Wow, that's, yeah, that's uh, quite uh, but So it's really a house, but it is being tacked onto an existing structure that has been the house. And so, anyway but saying that we work with both new and renovation. And so we are often doing commercial work that has to do with renovation of everything from new tenant layout stuff within existing structures for businesses. Uh, we do that in um, from everything from strip malls to uh, new renovated and sometimes they're historic, and sometimes they're just old. And, and freestanding structures to offices within larger buildings, yes. and as you say, strip centers. Yes. Um, and so, the uh, while I have worked with communities and organizations on, say, some site planning and strategic layouts of properties. Um, Right now, I am sitting on um, one of the members of the uh, Canton's Commission uh, Visioning 2050, which is their citizens group that is looking at where will Canton be in the next 35 years? What are the ideas about what we're going to bring forward? And these have to do with everything from the workings of government to the transportation, housing, mobility and accessibility. What are those things that are going to be coming up and how might we start putting things in place now for the future? Which which are areas that, that, that fall under that, that umbrella that uh, we are all 
working other working under increasingly uh, that we call sustainability and I'm wondering uh, about uh, when in your career Roy you know there are architects who are uh, focused on building residential structures industrial structures commercial structures interiors in some cases architects who are skewed toward the engineering aspect, architects skewed more toward the, the, the broad design aspects, working with uh, architectural engineers, which I'm sure you do as well. But the area of urban planning, which has separate uh, professionals that, that, that focus on, on uh, the planning for uh, more than one structure on a given site and the planning of even entire cities and communities, did you start early in your career with the intention of keeping your hand in that aspect of uh, architecture, which would be the extension of architecture crossing over into urban planning, or had you even for uh, a period of time thought you might be an urban planner? My undergraduate degree from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, was a full double major. And I had both their um, pre-architectural program as well as within their school of urban studies, the urban design option of that. So uh, I had urban design. I had an, a preliminary architectural basis before I chose the architecture to be the focus of my graduate work. I did my got my master's at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, and that gave me a really good basis from which to start. Now, one of the things that happens within the field of architecture is that your schooling can only take you so far. And the industry recognizes this, to the frustration of all students, myself included, that you've put in a huge number of years of post-secondary education, and you come out and they go, oh, yes, you can be an intern now. And it isn't until the wisdom of years later that I go, oh, you need to do that. And it was about three or four years into my first big architectural firm that I worked for in Philadelphia that I asked one of the principals about, do you ever get a sense that you know architecture? And he just sort of laughed. And the answer is absolutely not. It is a constant learning. There's the learning of the different people that you are designing for. It is a evolving construction changes and materials that become available. It is an evolving landscape of where you are building buildings for. And so it's the atmosphere uh, and location and environment that you are building in is often different. And so that happens whether you're building inside an urban aspect or whether you're in a rural aspect, whether you're doing coastal work or all of these different things have an effect, especially on new buildings when you're doing it. So, 
Well, the, you answered my question about uh, at what stage you were engaged as both and and had the perspective of an architect and as an urban planner, and that was early as a, an undergraduate, uh, m- much like I was a pre-med psychology double major with the intention of going to medical school to be a psychiatrist, so that it was a balance between the two, uh, until I became... Um, uh, swayed by media and marketing and, and uh, went down that wayward path um, it was going to be an integration of the two uh, the mind and the body and in your case um, the the structure and the combination of structures that is urban planning and, and we're going to take a break but when we come back we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what you've done um, with the firm to help folks uh, highly customize homes uh, with clients uh, and commercial buildings, but also about urban planning. We're here with Roy Taylor of RT3 Architects. We'll be back with Roy right after this break. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedStuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedStuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And today we've been talking with Roy Taylor of RT3 Architects about the field of architecture, the evolution of the field of architecture, about the designing of structures, about urban planning, and about Roy's firm, RT3 Architects. We talked about how the firm focuses on residential uh, design and construction, commercial design and construction, uh, interiors, exteriors, new construction, renovation, design build, and urban planning. And before the break, we were talking about how from the earliest stages of Roy's career back to his undergraduate years, he focused on both architecture and urban planning. And really, I see it as the perfect way to go because the two are integrated and I know that you have a philosophical commitment to helping uh, a property owner that wants to design a commercial structure to be highly functional and customized as the budget will permit and a homeowner to design a highly customized, very livable 
structure, but also to design places and to have um, structures fit into that sense of place so that it's, in many ways, a, a, a full spectrum of, of livability. Would, would that be correct, Roy? Yes. The way that if there was a school of design that I would come out of, it would be called contextualism. And that has to do with understanding the place that you are building in. And you can design in a variety of different ways that take advantage of that. If you are building in an urban setting, what are the patterns that already exist there before you? The heights of buildings, the scalability, the walkability of the block that you're on. How do you approach the street and what somebody is seeing? Is this happening more on a boulevard that traffic is moving by more quickly and you need to have larger, more grand things than you would in on a sidewalk where people are looking in the windows and seeing things as they go by? Do you have something that matches something that goes up a story or two that is the street presence and then have something different that might happen above that level? How do you cap that at the cornice upper level of being able to change the concept of how it meets the sky, so to speak? And so those are all different concepts of how you would do it in an urban setting. In a suburban or more rural setting, what is the shape of the ground around you? How is it met? How does the sun affect this as it tracks across the sky? What are the prevailing winds that are going to affect it? How is the trees? What is the view? These are all different aspects to take in as you're thinking about planting this structure and letting it grow out of the ground. And then design-wise, you have a couple of different options there as well. Are you trying to meld into the landscape so that your structure is feels like it's some organic growth out of it? Um, perhaps the most famous of those types of, of things would be Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Waters, where the cantilevering concrete slabs mimic that of the stone structure and the creek that runs right practically through the design, even though it's just bypassing the house that sits there. Let, let me interrupt you here uh, for a moment, Roy, and uh, I, I have to, um, in, in fact, I consider myself remiss because I I, uh, I didn't necessarily intend on, on, on bringing up falling water, but I I, I I have to. You 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 mentioned it. It has always been, and I have never seen the structure. It's on my uh, short list of places to visit. Um, but uh, for listeners out there not familiar with the house that Lo- Frank Lloyd Wright uh, designed and oversee the build- oversaw the building of, outside of uh, not too far from Pittsburgh, would that be the closest uh, major city? Uh, uh, it, it is uh, regarded very often as as uh, a home built uh, into the context of its environment uh, in an in an absolutely uh, a beautiful manner, uh, and then the structure itself is 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 quite beautiful. Are you? taken with that structure? Are you as taken as I am, um, my perspective from afar, and, and did you get, have you actually been able to see it up close? 
I have studied it, but I have not yet myself. It is on my list of places to get to. So you appreciate it from afar as well. Right. But there's many things that need to be recognized with a structure like that, that until you've started realizing what it took to be able to get that, uh, the cost of that structure, the amount of time that it took to build that structure, uh, went completely past the client's uh, expectations and goals, um, which does not diminish the project itself. The idea that Frank Lloyd Wright brought in uh, shipbuilders uh, from Norway to be able to actually craft the windows and woodworking that existed within the thing that were designing and and building these things to such a high customized level the amount of engineering and steel that is in those architectural slabs that allow it to just perch there in its site the, the, the cantilevered quality alone, in my opinion, the, the, is quite spectacular. Well, it is. And it's so I have the amusement of reading Frank Lloyd Wright in his book on the nature of materials and looking for materials to express themselves. And then he goes and does something like falling water, which is hiding the structure and making it look so simple and is not quite the nature of materials because the idea of using concrete and steel to end up in a flying cantilevered manner is hardly the nature of concrete, which is to be solid and create a foundation and to be built upon and to set there as a footprint. Um, Those are very interesting twists on things. Well, I I have oftentimes thought of um, many uh, structures, uh, residential and commercial um, and even industrial, uh, as large uh, structural m- monuments to the egos of some architects, and and I have to say, Frank Lloyd Wright would would probably admit to some of his structures being an extension of of his personal ego. Um, but what a beautiful extension of his uh, ego in, in in falling waters. Let's let's turn to talking about designing and building in context. Let's turn to sustainability. Sustainability is that overarching umbrella these days which factors in everything from economics to uh, the social uh, and the physical environment uh, for the long term. Uh, tell us about, and and let's talk about um, how green and how sustainable are similar but different uh, um, areas of uh, architecture, and tell us a little bit about what RT3 has done to incorporate sustainability into uh, the the uh, design of, of structures. The name of the firm uh, and that name change occurred at the same time that we were making a decision to consciously make that our premise of the architectural firm. It was at that same time that uh, I passed the um, 
USGBC has a certification program that is leadership in environmental and uh, energy design and design. So that's the LEED that you see as a designation or certification of buildings. They also have an accredited professional certification. So I am a LEED AP from having done my studies and testing on that. They have since that time have entered into a whole host of separate portions or focused portions of looking at the same areas, but looking at them from new buildings and existing buildings, from just doing the shell to um, being able to look at interiors. And so they have a breakdown of a variety of different designations. They did not even have those when I passed and uh, first became a lead accredited professional. The There's several different things that are happening within the sustainability thing that led me to that. In my undergraduate and my graduate times in college, we had both the first and second oil embargoes. And we were working from very early on, having discussions amongst fellow students uh, and professors about what the implications of having restricted energy available to us. This was a an interesting time. My graduate work was during the time of uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency. It was he who had the conversation as a national conversation for the very first time about taking some responsibility here in how we used our energy, in the thoughts about turning down the thermostat, uh, the thoughts about putting on a sweater, the thoughts about how we could develop a manufacturing. This is much less known about the work that they were looking at, how we were building things, and could we build things that lasted longer and so would reverse the ideas of things that were designed to break. And and it was a point in time when green was was very, very, very much defined by energy efficiency as opposed to evolving uh, over the next decade or so into uh, a zero uh, carbon emissions neutrality uh, and and a broader uh, definition of green. So there was a lot of emphasis on on energy efficiency. Is that right? Yes, and that came directly out of things like the energy, uh, the the oil embargoes that occurred, which shot up our energy prices in this country. And the it is one of the unfortunate things that these ideas were first looked at as if we were going to be deprived to be able to accept energy efficiency, as opposed to that these are very liberating things that we had. And so from the end of that presidency through and into the, the 90s, um, there was a step back. Uh, the whole country seemed to think that we could pres- move in a different direction and that we actually, 
in the mid-90s realized we had left something behind? We've come a long way since then. We're uh, designing, you're designing uh, structures which are highly uh, energy efficient and uh, intelligent in ways beyond energy efficiency. And we're going to talk about some of those right after the break uh, because you design what many might consider to be smart, uh, sustainable homes, and we'll, we'll talk about that. We're here with architect Roy Taylor. We've been talking about his work uh, and his firm, RT3 Architects. We'll be back to talk with Roy uh, more about sustainability and architecture and contextualism um, right after the break. Certification. Do you know why becoming a certified healthcare consumerism specialist is more important than ever in 2014? Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series, and testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Roy Taylor of RT3 Architects, and we've been talking about the work of his firm, about sustainable architecture, about... Uh, urban design, uh, how architecture fits in with with the larger uh, urban design of a of a community, uh, so that it's in context. And I know that one of the areas, Roy, that that your firm specializes in, uh, along with helping uh, clients to build uh, large homes, which is still quite the fashion. Um, here in the metro Atlanta area, and by the way, you had mentioned Canton earlier, and for listeners out there who aren't aware that we're broadcasting from Atlanta, uh, the beauty of Atlanta is that it's a great microcosm of the United States in many, many ways. Um, It fortunately also enjoys a strong enough economy that it can afford firms like Roy's to do the kind of work that ranges from um, large-scale private residences and what might be considered upscale design and building of commercial structures and, and renovations, and we might be able to touch on historic renovation as well, but 
you're able to design smaller homes, which have come somewhat into fashion, and, and I believe they're going to come into to, uh, greater fashion and that there will be a trend toward what I consider upscale small homes, homes which are, are, are greener, more efficient, built for the, the long haul, um, and have as many amenities as your client uh, is able to afford. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what I'm calling upscale small homes, Roy, and, and you can, you can uh, give a, a more accurate description. Well, we are in the process of a series of home designs that will eventually be published under the title of Choos- Choosing Green Homes. The ideas here are that for sustainability, what we need to be working for is a carbon neutral, net energy, uh, net zero energy design. And what this means is that the home is ready with the addition of some energy inputs in this area, that would be solar panels. In another area, it might be small wind, or if you are in uh, a hilly area with some streams, it might be microhydro. That would be able to develop a little bit of the energy that was needed because you only needed a little bit of energy. One of the ways that we get to do that is through building smaller structures. Roy, these homes uh, are potentially uh, homes which, when you say uh, energy zero, and and certainly uh, carbon zero, where they're not uh, contributing to uh, the production of carbon emissions, is a is a is a is a great goal, uh, but also. Uh, Having a home which can be off the grid, uh, uh, what a fantastic thing. Uh, uh, Have you been able, are you getting close to uh, helping um, clients um, virtually be off the grid? Yes. Um, and But that is not the call at the moment for most people. And in most settings, I would not suggest that. Unless you, at this point, you were at a considerable distance from an existing grid. If you have the grid right there, what it does is it allows you to be able to put in systems that will feed the grid. So these are grid-tied solar systems that instead of having battery banks that you need to maintain and need to be kept up over the time, uh, that you sell your excess electricity back into the system. And so the system becomes the, in quotes, battery or storage mechanism that you use because you're producing your electricity not always when you need it. And so you put those electrons back into the system and you take them out when you need them. Have you had the opportunity, Roy, to help design a um, a small community or a subdivision of homes um, which incorporate a sufficient degree of sustainability so that collectively they were able to uh, to sell energy um, back uh, put energy back into the grid and, and actually sell it 
or at least reduce. This, uh, well, this has been cost. in discussion, so the answer is no. That that opportunity has not presented itself yet. In is that st- happening anywhere in the country? I don't know of a specific place that it has occurred, but the discussion and such, I we could probably find one. And if not, we're we're close, aren't we? Well. One of the problems is that we have a huge variety of rules, and every state is different for how that works, of the generation and uh, usage, uh, commercialization of electricity. So in Georgia, we are living in a fairly restrictive state in the way the rules are for being able to generate and sell electricity. We have the a territorial rule that says that only those people that are chosen for these different territories, which comprise all of Georgia, are allowed to generate and uh, sell electricity, whether that be a major player like Georgia Power, uh, and then the sub-players are the um, uh, electric membership corporations, the EMCs, that uh, take care of sometimes buying, sometimes generating their own electricity and serving the more rural areas. Um, So the problems come in in how one wants to finance. I, in that community you just described, could not put up an array, solar array, and then sell that electricity to all of those homes. That would not be allowed in the state of Georgia at this time. But but I do know, and we've had guests on the program from the Georgia Utilities uh, Organization, uh, Georgia Solar Utilities is working uh, uh, to that end, so maybe uh, sometime uh, in the not-too-distant future uh, you'll be able to do that. Um, I want to... turn to a a slightly different uh, uh, topic within this larger context of uh, your profession as an architect because we're we're running out of time here but I know that uh, lots of listeners are endlessly fascinated by when uh, little Roy Taylor first thought that he might be an architect and and within that context uh, did you have an erector set or Lincoln Logs? Well, I think we all grew up with erector sets and Lincoln Logs, but that may not be true. Uh, and, and what's also not true is that some people built uh, better uh, structures with their Lincoln Logs and their erector sets, and you were probably one of them. One of the things, it, it was it was a sense someplace near the end of high school when I was taking an assessment of what my talents were as to what I might do with myself as I moved into into college, and that was when the, the concept of architecture came into uh, into mind. The understanding of talents that it takes and what might have led me to architecture was something that I was out of grad school before I had an understanding that there are many people who do not see things the way I am able to see things. N- not unlike um, uh, an assessment that I had uh, that uh, sort of led me toward that pre-med psychology um, combination. Um, but then again, there was an almost third and fourth major in environmental studies, 
in film and photography because there were some indications that those areas uh, uh, were of interest and there were some aptitudes. So uh, it took me a while to create a, a good balance, but I'm glad that you figured out a, a good balance and, and have been able to, uh, in my opinion, self-actualize yourself as an architect and an urban planner. We're better for it. Uh, Roy, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the Business Hour. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Ron. You've been listening to the Business Hour here at America's Web Radio. We're on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on the radio next week.